Hello everybody and welcome to Expedition History, the place to be for the greatest stories of the past. I apologize for the months-long hiatus between this episode and the last, but don't worry, what I have for you today will more than make up for it. In our last release, Persian Dawn, I presented you with one episode broken up into three separate parts within that singular episode's hour or so long time frame. Well now, I present to you part one of a three-part series, with each part being its own full-length episode in its own right, altogether encompassing the story of one of the world's greatest naval heroes. Are you suitably enticed? Well, I hope so, because without further ado, I present to you Expedition History, Sir Francis Drake, Part 1, The Dragon. Centuries ago, courageous men set out from the old world of Eurasia and made course for the horizon, boldly sailing out into parts unknown. Before them lay an unfathomably vast expanse of uncharted lands, protected by thousands of miles of treacherous open ocean. Standing aboard their wooden sailing ships, the captains and navigators crossed the hazardous seas by utilizing poorly made, often hand-drawn maps, whose features were more often than not based off of nothing more than hearsay and rumors. On the parts of the map that represented the barren expanse of open water, mariners could find any number of different images, each one representing a different threat. These charts were littered with imagery, of seductive mermaids that would pull sailors overboard to their watery grave, of great serpents that could swallow a ship whole, of squids so large that they could split a vessel in two, and of dragons, those mythological creatures that can be found in cultures around the world, and so too found their home in the fearful minds of sailors out at sea. While today we can scientifically explain away most of these sea monsters, for a time, one of these beasts was all too real. In the latter half of the 16th century, the entirety of the Spanish Empire lived in fear of one of these beings. They referred to it as El Draque, the dragon, and he haunted the minds of both Spanish sailors and coastal landsmen alike, regardless of whether or not they were manning the gun of a Spanish warship or staring into the night sky above a distant colony on the far side of the world. To the English of the era, he was a national hero. To the Spaniards, he was the very manifestation of destruction itself. He was the sailor, the explorer, the privateer and adventurer, Sir Francis Drake. Though the exact year of his birth has been disputed, Sir Francis Drake was born sometime in the early 1540s to a peasant farming family in Devon, England. At a young age, Drake and his family were forced to flee Devon following the outbreak of a Catholic uprising against English authorities in the area. Known as the Prayer Book Rebellion, the short-lived uprising was ignited following King Edward IV's change to English religious law, openly favoring the recently formed Church of England over Catholicism. Though a relatively localized event, it was but a part of the Greater English Reformation, a decades-long time of religious tension that had begun with King Henry VIII's famous abandonment of the Catholic faith, initially undertook so that he may divorce his wife, something that had been explicitly forbidden by the reigning Pope Clement VII himself. In fact, part of the reasoning behind the Pope's forbiddance was his attempted preservation of England as an uncorrupted Catholic state, as by the time the newborn Drake entered the world, Europe had already long been split in two by the Protestant Reformation, with rulers of all sorts choosing whether or not to retain their traditional Catholic faith or to adopt one of the many flavors of Protestantism, taking both themselves and their kingdom away from the traditional Orthodox Church. This religious divide between the old guard of the Catholics and the upstart Protestant reformers did much to throw Europe into centuries of unrest, as age-old rivals can now count on religious differences to provide a proper justification of war, 
better vindicating them in the eyes of the world and comfortably assuring them that their efforts will be bolstered by fellow defenders of their respective faith. Though all of this is all far removed from the infant Drake, keep it in mind because it does much to set the backdrop for Drake's future exploits. But anyways, back to the man himself. Fleeing their home in Devon, the Drake family made their way to southeastern England, resettling in the vicinity of Midway and Kent. Once there, Drake's father took up religious work in service of the newly founded Royal Navy, turning his family's eyes away from the tilled soil and fresh manure of their old agricultural life, and onto that of the frigid waters of the cold North Sea. The young Francis Drake, then just a boy, immediately became enamored with the limitless adventures that lie among the waves. As luck would have it, the Drake's next-door neighbor owned and operated his own merchant shipping company, making lucrative trips between the coasts of England and France aboard his personal bark, a three-masted, square-rigged ship more than capable of making the frequent journeys across the English Channel. As Drake came of age, he was offered to join his neighbor as an apprentice, accompanying him on the cross-channel voyages and learning all there was to learn about trading and seamanship. Young Drake leapt at the opportunity, packed his bags, and joined the bark's crew as soon as he was able. His life ahead of him now lay at sea. Drake would prove to be a natural sailor, unequivocally excelling throughout his apprenticeship and quickly becoming his neighbor's right-hand man. The two became close friends and business partners, so close in fact that Drake's neighbor, having never married and possessing no children of his own, began to view Drake as his own son. Their partnership, however, though fruitful, would not last long. Only a few years after the start of the apprenticeship, Drake's neighbor passed away. But before his passing, he had become strikingly confident in Drake's future potential, knowing that greatness lay within the young lad, and so bestowed upon Drake the business, the bark, and everything aboard. Though still a young man, Captain Drake had suddenly found himself as the master of his own vessel and crew. Now at the head of his own enterprise, Drake would continue to ship goods between England and France for only a short time more. The repetitive ferrying of cargo was growing rather mundane, and there was more money to be made elsewhere. At the age of 20, he departed England, and, having chosen to forego his usual channel operations, decided instead to make for the faraway land of Guinea, located on the western African coast. Once in Guinea, Drake took in the sights, the bustling harbors, the colorful marketplaces, the exotic locals, and the ever-stronger allure of adventure. Having gotten a taste of a more exciting life, how could he ever return to his humdrum existence back home? Unfortunately for Drake, however, he did return to his humdrum life, but he would not stay for long. Upon his return to Kent, he immediately began to reach out high and low, searching for any sort of work that could take him away from the boring shores of England. In 1566, Drake would spend the better part of the year aboard an English vessel sent south to the coast of West Africa, raiding Portuguese coastal settlements and selling their newly acquired cargo to anyone interested. But the venture was far from a success. Unable to find an ample number of buyers, some of the cargo taken aboard had never even made it to the market. Upon his return to England in 1567, Drake, frustrated, hit the ports and taverns again, searching high and low for the right type of work. However, there was nothing immediately available to which he could lend himself, and so he decided to call upon a distant relative of his, a second cousin by the name of Sir John Hawkins, who had financed Drake's two previous voyages. If one were to open a textbook on early English colonization of the Americas, one would find that Hawkins is not exactly a stranger to making history, and is quite the prolific character in his own right. However, whereas his cousin Drake is held up as a national hero, certainly a glorious position to find oneself in, Hawkins is, well, in today's lens a more, how should we say, 
ignominious figure. That's because Sir John Hawkins, among other things, is oft remembered as the first English slave trader. Time for some historical background. In the 16th century, the Spanish Empire was the strongest force in Europe and the world's only standing superpower. And this is no mere exaggeration. In 1492, searching for a new route to Asia, the Spanish crown sent forth the Genoese explorer Christopher Columbus on what has to be the most famous voyage in all of history. Though he didn't find Asia, he did stumble across something better. Two whole continents, an entirely new hemisphere that ushered the old world into a new era, the Age of Discovery. Spain was quick to act on Columbus's findings, flooding the Atlantic with explorers, eager to see more of what lay at the edge of the world. Their rival Portugal was quick to resist, but the Pope intervened, forcing the two kingdoms to sign the Treaty of Tordesillas in 1494, and more or less splitting the world into two spheres of influence. Portugal will get Africa and India, and Spain will get most of the New World. Well, minus Brazil. But Spain didn't care about Brazil. They had just been handed sole domain over an unexplored landmass many times the size of the entire European continent, carte blanche. The decades following the treaty would see much of the North and South American continents explored and conquered by Spanish conquistadors, with a continual flow of civilian colonists falling behind in their wake. The people of these Spanish colonies, whether Spanish, indigenous, or otherwise, would all swear loyalty to the King of Spain, and thus their lands would be added to the imperial realm. Over time, these new imperial provinces would begin to export much of their resources back to Spain itself, with great amounts of silver, gold, and agricultural products all making their way back to Europe, enriching the empire far beyond its wildest dreams and fueling the ever-growing might of the Spanish crown. However, despite their continual output, the colonies were never truly self-sufficient, often relying on Mother Spain to supply a considerable amount of supply and support. This, in turn, would lead to the development of the Atlantic Triangular Trading Network, a three-point trading system that operated between the Americas, Europe, and Western Africa. Ships would depart the Americas with riches bound for Europe, who upon arrival would unload the American imports and load up on manufactured goods, clothing, jewelry, firearms, those sorts of things. Now laden with European exports, the ships would sail down to Africa and trade their cargo with local tribes and warlords in exchange for African slaves, who would then be taken westwards across the Atlantic, bound for colonial ports. Upon the ship's arrival, the human cargo would be unloaded, and the cycle would begin again. Always in need of additional manpower, the Spanish colonial authorities continually placed a high demand on imported African labor. Sailing between Western Africa and the Spanish colonial holdings, hundreds of slave ships crossed the Atlantic every year, and the slave trade itself soon became a valuable part of the Spanish imperial economy. Not only were the men and women on board used to increase the colonial export capacity, but they could also fetch a hefty price at the markets, especially if sold in bulk. Relatively defenseless compared to the vessels of the great Spanish treasure fleets, the slave ships were easy targets for any opportunists who dared to challenge Spanish hegemony at sea. Opportunists like Sir John Hawkins. By the time Drake had reached out to Hawkins in pursuit of employment, Hawkins had already made quite the name for himself in the eyes of the English crown. He had previously launched two separate expeditions to the Americas, one in 1562 and one in 1564, each time aiming for the valuable Spanish slave trade. Leading a flotilla of English ships, Hawkins would seize the Spanish vessels and capture their cargo for himself, whether it be gold and jewels or slaves and sugar. Once suitably laden with loot, he wouldn't return to England, but rather sail directly into Spanish colonial ports, where he would sell off all of his cargo at discounted prices, 
undercutting the monopoly held by the traders of the Spanish crown and creating a small personal fortune. This, understandably, did much to anger the Spanish, and they would not sit back idly for long. In 1568, Hawkins launched a third expedition to the Americas, sailing aboard the Jesus of Lubeck at the head of a flotilla of six ships, among them the bark Judith, captained by Drake, who had joined his cousin in what was sure to be a highly profitable adventure. While raiding Spanish slavers off the coast of Ghana, they were met by a Portuguese caravel, a small but maneuverable vessel with triangular sails, who wanted in on the action and promptly joined Hawkins' force, boosting the ship count to seven. After having seized some 500 slaves from the Spanish, the flotilla replenished their water stocks before setting sail for their voyage west, aiming for the Caribbean. The flotilla reached the Spanish holding of Dominica in late March, where they sold off what cargo they could before heading south towards the Caribbean port of Cartagena, arriving in late July. After spending much of the summer conducting business, the flotilla weighed anchor and sailed north for the Spanish settlements along the Floridian coast. However, they were met by a devastating hurricane just offshore, the storm churning the sea so much that powerful waves slammed into the flotilla's wooden sailing vessels, warping the hull of the Jesus of Lubeck and damaging many other vessels. With his flagship seriously damaged and his crews low on supplies, Hawkins decided that they were in no way able to make the perilous voyage home across the Atlantic. Instead, they had to make for the nearest available port, this port belonging to the Spanish colonial province of New Spain, a port by the name of San Juan de Olua. Nestled atop a small stone island barely able to peek its head above the waterline, San Juan de Olua was located along the Central American coast, roughly overlooking where the modern city of Veracruz, Mexico stands today. As the English flotilla entered the port on September 16, 1568, a thick sense of tension hung in the air. They had been out all summer, ravaging Spanish shipping, and were now seeking aid from a Spanish-held port and had no more goods to try to buy favor. There was no way to reliably predict how the Spanish authorities would react. Seizing the initiative, Hawkins, Drake, and the rest of the flotilla came upon three Spanish vessels within the port, overtaking them in the hopes to begin negotiations in their favor. The Spanish officials of San Juan were expecting a fleet from Spain to arrive any day now, and, mistaking Hawkins' flotilla for them, boarded the Jesus of Lubeck. Shocked upon their revelation that the newly arrived ships were in fact English, their fear gave way to relief when Hawkins stated that they had no desire to plunder the port, but rather to restock provisions and make necessary repairs, and was more than willing to pay for their troubles. The Spanish officials, relieved, accepted the English payment and began the repairs and resupply at once. Unfortunately for the English, however, the Spanish fleet, the one the officials had been expecting, was still due to arrive in port. Even more unfortunately for the English, it arrived the very next day. Disastrously for the English, it meant business. On September 17th, a Spanish pinnace, a lighter sailing ship mostly used to ferry passengers, entered the port of San Juan de Lua. On board was perhaps the highest ranking official in the entire hemisphere, the newly appointed governor of New Spain, Viceroy Don Martin Enriquez de Almanza on his way from Spain to Mexico City. But of course, a man of such high status would never travel alone. Accompanying him were two galleons, large multi-decked warships, the battleships of the era, complete with hundreds of sailors and soldiers aboard and bristling with guns. Both the English and Spanish fleets were alarmed upon the presence of the other. Unsure of what to do, the small Spanish war escort fleet weighed anchor outside the harbor, unwilling to risk violence by entering the port, at least for now. The English, now effectively trapped in the harbor, 
were afraid of potential hostilities, and Hawkins began to send envoys to the Spanish fleet in hopes of forging a non-aggression pact. After two days of negotiations, a truce was settled, and hostages were exchanged with the goal of assuring good behavior by both sides. According to the terms, the English were allowed to buy supplies and repair their vessels, as well as garrison the island with 11 pieces of cannon for their protection. Meanwhile, the Spanish were allowed to enter the port, but, for the safety of both sides, must moor on the other side of the harbor, as far from the English as possible. Additionally, the Spanish soldiers and sailors were allowed to disembark upon the island, but not while under arms. Almost as soon as the truce was agreed upon, the Spanish plotted against it. Viceroy Don Martin had been specifically tasked with curbing English piracy in the area, and before him lay Hawkins, Drake, and an additional handful of ship captains who had been a pain in Spain's ass for years. They, of course, would have to be destroyed. After spending an additional two days moving into the harbor so as to moor, the Spanish began to secretly maneuver their soldiers for the inevitable attack, sending a sizable force to the mainland in order to attack the 11-gun battery Hawkins had established as per the truce. Furthermore, an additional 200 or so men would be secretly placed aboard a hulk, a defunct vessel not capable of ocean travel. The plan was for the Hulk to be towed between the two galleons, the soldiers aboard waiting for a trumpet signal to attack him before springing from the vessel, where they would board and capture the closest English ship. But the English were by no means fools, and, upon noticing the movement of weapons and personnel between Spanish ships, grew increasingly suspicious of an attack from the Hulk. Hawkins, wishing to nip any attack in the bud before it occurred, sent his Spanish-speaking captain of the Jesus of Lubeck to demand that the Viceroy cease his hostile buildup at once. Upon receiving the captain's demands, the Viceroy knew his plot had been found out, and the order was given for the attack to commence. A trumpet was sounded from the Spanish fleet, and all at once, hell broke loose. The Spaniards aboard the hulk exploded outwards, immediately assailing the Minion, the nearest English ship. Reeling from the surprise, the English sailors aboard hurriedly rushed to the top decks to fend off the Spanish boarding parties, desperately holding back the invaders long enough for the minion to weigh anchor, drop its sails, and fall back, breaking contact with the Hulk. Their attack on the minion having failed, the Spanish soldiers aboard the Hulk turned their attention to the next closest English vessel, the Jesus of Lubeck. The Spanish soldiers violently boarded the vessel, claiming most of the top deck before an unrelenting wave of determined English sailors emerged from the belly of the ship, casting themselves into the melee. A furious brawl developed, each man fighting for his life as no quarter was given, the sounds of dying men and clashing metal filling the air as the deck beneath them began to run red with blood. Eventually, on account of their fine swordplay, the English were able to clear off most of the deck, cutting the boarding lines of the Hulk and heaving off, putting distance between the two. Fearing that they would be next, and knowing there was little they could to stem the Spanish tide, the captain and crew of the Portuguese caravel chose to reinforce the Jesus of Lubeck, scuttling their ship behind them, setting it alight so as to deny it to the enemy. Having heard the trumpet call from the harbor, the contingent of Spanish soldiers on the mainland immediately rushed to their boats, rowing with haste for the island the harbor sat upon, hitting the beaches and rushing the 11-gun English battery. Taken entirely by surprise, the English gun crews were forced into flight, abandoning the guns and fleeing for the safety of their ships in the harbor. Those who stayed behind were caught by the onrush of Spaniards and were able to put up only token resistance before falling where they stood. The English ships, now free from the immediate dangers of the Hulk, began to trade shots with the Spanish galleons who had since advanced upon them. Though mere merchantmen, 
the English gunners proved to be more than a match for their Spanish counterparts, as salvo after salvo found its mark upon the galleon's hulls. The tide turned, however, when the cannon battery began to open fire. Now held by the Spanish, it poured murderous fire upon the English ships in the harbor. As cannonballs began to rain down upon the minion, Hawkins steered the Jesus of Lubeck between her and the battery, shielding the minion from the withering fire. Now able to sail unmolested, the crew of the minion could do nothing but watch as behind them the Jesus was reeled with salvo after salvo, its mast shot clean off, and its hull turned to matchsticks. Forced to abandon ship, Hawkins transferred himself with most of the survivors to the grateful minion, leaving behind a rear guard aboard the Jesus to cover the pickup of survivors, the Spanish gunners continuing to lay into the English fleet, silencing two smaller vessels. Captain Drake, yes, we haven't forgotten about him, aboard the Judith, was the most removed from the battle, and though he had been trading fire with the galleons, he could see the writing on the wall. Regrouping with the minion, the two sailed to the entrance of the harbor in a fighting retreat, firing the entire way. Eventually, having suffered more than enough damage and fending off a Spanish fireship attack, the act of sending a flaming vessel towards hostile ships in the hope of destroying them or sending their crews in a panic, Hawkins and Drake decided to call it quits and retreated from the harbor altogether. That night, Hawkins and Drake did all that they could to begin their journey home. The minion under Hawkins had only scant provisions and was far beyond crew capacity, carrying some 100 sailors. Survivors from the Jesus and other vessels making up a large portion of the ship's complement. The Judith, under Drake, on the other hand, was crewed only by her original hands, and though supplies were still light, the vessel was in a far better shape to make it to England alive. Afraid that Hawkins and the Minion would slow him down and cause additional suffering, Drake sailed the Judith away in the dead of night, abandoning his cousin and patron to whatever fate may find him. The Battle of San Juan de Olua ended in a decisive English defeat. Only the Minion and Judith had survived, their retreat leaving in their wake some 500 Englishmen dead, the rest of the vessels sunk or captured. Further disaster was only averted by the changing of the winds behind them, rendering the Spanish fleet unable to pursue. Though the Spanish got off relatively light in the casualty department, losing only a few dozen men, their escort fleet did suffer the loss of one of their two galleons, the vessel erupting into a roaring inferno towards the tail end of the battle before sinking in the harbor. A testament to the gunnery prowess of the average English sailor. Spoiler alert, that's a useful tool that will come in handy later on. Following their retreat, Hawkins and Drake crossed the Atlantic horribly underprovisioned. the few supplies they had at the outset of the battle having been stretched thin between the survivors and the retreat. By the time they each returned to England in the winter of 1568-69, with Drake arriving one month before Hawkins, less than a hundred total men were still alive. As the survivors told their story, the breaking of the truce and the subsequent Battle of San Juan de Lua immediately became a sharp example of Spanish treachery, highlighting their status as a vile enemy, whipping the entire Kingdom of England into an anti-Spanish fervor, with all levels of the population calling to avenge the fallen sailors. But more importantly, not only for us here in the podcast, but for perhaps England overall, the defeat at San Juan de Lua changed Drake forever. So ashamed was he of his conduct during and after the battle, that it would stick with him for the rest of his life. Already haunted by his own actions, the slaughter he had witnessed against his fellow Englishmen, all at the hands of the treacherous Spanish Viceroy, gave rise to a deep hatred not only for the Spanish Empire, but for the entirety of Spain itself, and for all things Spanish. Gone was the Francis Drake, who had been a mere traitor peddling wares across the English Channel. In the aftermath of San Juan de Olua, a new Drake was born, 
a hardened man who decided that he shall devote his life to combating the Spanish wherever he may find them. He had developed a thirst for vengeance, one not easily quenched. Luckily for Drake, he wouldn't be left wanting for long. The aftermath of San Juan de Alua did in fact do much to whip up English war fever against the Spanish Empire, and, with the two sides suffering religious friction for quite some time, open hostilities lay just around the corner. But there was a problem. The prospect of outright hostilities did not bode well for the English. At this point in time, in the late 1560s, England was far removed from the massive imperial superpower it's often remembered as today. Spain ruled the world, and the slogan, Britannia rule the waves, was but a pipe dream, if it had even been dreamt of at all. A formal declaration of war would do nothing but expose the English to the onslaught of the might of the Spanish Empire, something the Iron Kingdom wasn't yet prepared for by any measure. Not yet, at least. We'll get there. However, open warfare wasn't the only option on the table. In fact, there were numerous other ways in which the English could be sure to give the Spanish a black eye or two. Perhaps the most prolific method, arguably the most effective as well, and certainly the most important to us, was the use of privateers. A privateer, for those of you not well acquainted with nautical vernacular from the Age of Sail, is essentially a government-sponsored pirate. As a practice, privateering was rather common throughout the 16th through 19th centuries. With an entirely new world ahead of them, the European powers would frequently jockey against each other, picking fights on the high seas in order to interfere with the rival's colonial efforts. More often than not, an actual war was not in the interest of the powers that be, so the various rulers would instead offer letters of mark, essentially government licenses stating that the holder is legally allowed to attack and seize foreign ships and cargo. The issuance of these licenses effectively democratized naval warfare. A fleet raised by the king was costly to construct, train, and maintain. Why use the royal fleet when you could turn your kingdom's overseas merchants into your own personal dogs of war? They're cheaper, more numerous, are thorn in the side to your adversaries around the clock, and, better yet, all of the profit from their spoils returns to your own shores. What's not to like? Thus, perhaps it should come as no surprise that the small island kingdom of England bereft of a great war fleet like the Spanish, heavily played the privateering card in their own favor. The Atlantic was awash with English privateers in the mid-1500s, the captains and crews all doing what they could to profit at the expense of the Spanish. If this sounds familiar in any way, it is because Sir John Hawkins himself was a privateer, whose letter of mark allowed his flotilla to legally challenge the Spanish at sea. Well, before its destruction at San Juan de Alua, at least. But now, Having suffered the baptism of fire that spurs every apprentice to become a master, it was time for Francis Drake to make his mark. As fate would have it, that little incident in the Caribbean did little to snuff out Drake's future prospects. Now known as a veteran sailor and nautical expert, his reputation allowed him to put together a little privateering flotilla of his own. Departing England in 1570, Drake set off for the Caribbean at the head of two ships to gather intelligence on Spanish activities in the area. Returning to England in 1571, he doubled his efforts, collecting information on Spanish naval dispositions, trade activity, popular shipping lanes, and the defensive capabilities of the scattered Spanish-Caribbean ports. With his intelligence collection now complete, he began to plan the raid of the century. In the 16th century, the single greatest wealth-creating asset of the Spanish Empire lay deep within the Viceroyalty of Peru. Located in the modern-day country of Bolivia, Reaching 16,000 feet above sea level, 
The mountain of Cerro de Potosi towered over much of the surrounding area, and through it, Spain ruled the world. That's because Potosi was, and still is, the largest deposit of silver ore in the world. In the second half of the 1500s, the mines of Potosi alone were responsible for 60% of the world's silver production, and as such, became the site of the first Spanish colonial mint. Possessing such an incredible asset, the Spanish were easily able to exploit the mine's silver, becoming fabulously wealthy in the process. Potosi's silver essentially powered the might of the empire. It paid for their world-class army. It paid for their powerhouse of a navy. It paid for grand cathedrals that stand to this day as cultural icons. And it paid for imperial development from Aragon to Zacatecas. So vast was the wealth from Potosi that the Spanish couldn't spend all the silver themselves, as it would lead to devastating inflation. As a result, much of the excess silver was traded with China, opening an entirely new trading network between Europe and the Ming Dynasty. In fact, China was so economically self-sufficient that Spanish silver was one of the few items that they'd even bother to trade for. Another was opium, but that's a few hundred years down the line. But Potosi was nestled in the thick of the Andes, and for its silver to be of any use, it had to reach the market somehow. The Spanish, of course, were well aware of this, and so had developed a lengthy process by which to transport the endless tons of silver that was emerging from the mountain every year. Upon its removal from mines, the silver would be loaded onto pack animals, often llamas and mules, to be carried to the Pacific coast, where it would then be shipped north by sea to Panama City. Once in port, the silver would then be loaded onto a mule train for the difficult trek across the Panamanian Isthmus before arriving in the Caribbean port of Nombre de Dios, where the silver would be loaded aboard the great treasure fleets bound for Spain. With such large amounts of wealth passing through the Caribbean each year, Drake wanted in. The seizure of such a silver shipment was too enticing of an idea to ignore. It was, perhaps, the greatest possible score available. But how could Drake pull off such a feat? A Spanish treasure fleet was nigh untouchable. Heavily armed and well defended by escorts, any such attempt would certainly be suicidal. But Drake had a plan. In late May of 1572, Drake departed the port of Plymouth with two ships, the 70-ton Pasha and the smaller 25-ton Swan, bound for the Spanish Main. That is to say, the Spanish colonial holdings in the Americas. Well aware he didn't possess the capabilities to take on a treasure fleet, Drake decided instead to strike the silver before it had the chance to even reach the sea. Making for Nombre de Dios, his small fleet of privateers arrived in late July, finding the port lightly defended. Wasting no time, the English leapt into action, hitting the beaches in shallow draft landing boats before seizing the town and capturing the glittering treasures within. Though Drake and his raiders had only met token resistance, the Spanish defenders had at some point managed to score a lucky hit. In the midst of celebrating their victory, the privateers noticed that Drake himself had begun to bleed profusely after having received a nasty wound in the assault, the adrenaline coursing through his veins until then rendering the captain unaffected. The blood, however, continued to flow, and... Fearing for their leader's life, the privateers withdrew to their vessels, leaving much of the treasure behind. This, however, was not the end of the voyage. After having withdrawn from the Panamanian coast, the privateers laid low as Drake recovered, taking the time to rest and refit. Once back in fighting shape, Drake immediately took his sailors back into the action, and the privateers spent the rest of the year sailing the Caribbean exploiting targets of opportunity, raiding Spanish shipping, and harassing passing treasure fleets. While in the Caribbean, Drake and his men began to make unlikely allies, brought together over mutual hatred of the Spanish. 
One such group was that of the Cimarrons, African slaves who had escaped Spanish control some 80 years prior and who had been living in the jungles of Panama around Nombre de Dios in an independent society ever since. The Cimarrons knew the land like no other, and harboring a deep resentment over the cruelty that they had received by Spanish hands, were more than willing to aid Drake in his efforts to strike the Spanish wherever possible. The Cimarrons' wealth as allies would prove invaluable in the raids to come. In February 1573, Drake received information from his Cimarron allies that a Spanish mule train had recently been sighted in the vicinity of Nombre de Dios. Striking while the iron was hot, Drake and a few dozen of his men, accompanied by a few dozen Cimarron guides and porters, took off in pursuit, moving with great haste to overtake the mule train and ambush it. Possessing an expert knowledge of the surrounding terrain, the Cimarron proved to be an indispensable asset in the raiders' advance, at one point bringing the English to a hill from which they could see across both sides of the isthmus, able to view both the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean. Climbing a tree to get a better view, Drake gazed upon the Pacific, stating that one day he hoped an Englishman might sail it. Remember this, because this is what you call foreshadowing. Upon reaching a spot where they planned to ambush the mule train, the raiders settled in. After everyone had managed to get into position, Cimarron's scouts were dispatched to capture a nearby Spanish soldier, whereupon his interrogation, it was revealed that the train was only a few hours away. After some time had passed, the raiders, patiently lined in wait, were finally able to lay eyes on their quarry. Slowly bumbling up the jungle road was a Spanish mule train, laden with untold riches. As the train grew closer, however, one of the guards spotted a Cimarron hiding in the vegetation and rose the alarm. Thrown into a panic, the guards desperately tried to turn the mule train around, but, canalized by the narrow jungle road, were fatally unsuccessful. Taking advantage of the confusion, Drake and his raiders sprung forth from the tree lines, fell upon the mule train, neutralized the guards, and seized the pack animals. When the dust settled and the English began to rummage through the train's stores, they were met with a disappointing revelation. The cargo was almost worthless. There were some tools and materials, yes, but not a single ounce of gold or silver could be found. Their efforts had been entirely in vain. Disheartened, the English returned to their ships with their heads hung low, and their only consolation being that the Cimarron swore to remain loyal. Though morale was hard to come by, sheer luck, perhaps destiny, would soon give Drake and the English the chance that they've been looking for. The next month, in late March 1573, Drake and the English made yet another unexpected ally, this time coming in the form of the 80-ton French warship Av, captained by Guillaume de Testu. Though in the Caribbean currently serving as a privateer, de Testu is not just another run-of-the-mill sea captain. Some of his more notable accolades include his status as a legendary cartographer and famed explorer, perhaps the first European to ever map the land we now call Australia. The presence of de Testu was originally a red flag to Drake and his crew. The French, of course, are the historic rivals of the English predating even hostilities against the Spanish. But de Testu and his crew aboard the Av were not your average Frenchmen. They were, in fact, Huguenots, French Protestants who, at the time, were suffering greatly at the hands of Catholic persecution. A few months prior, de Testu had seen his people suffer the violence of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, an event in which French Catholic authorities and mobs slew thousands of Protestants over the course of several weeks. Chastened by the bloodshed, De Testu and 80 Huguenot sailors took to the sea, bent on raiding Catholic shipping. Unified in their fight against Spanish activity in the area, De Testu and his crew were more than happy to ally with Drake and the English, doubly so, now that a new plan was underway. 
their first mule train raid having been a failure, Drake was eager to make it right. And what better way to make up for a failure than with an unbridled success? Keeping in touch with his Cimarron allies on the ground, word eventually reached him of a new mule train on its way to Nombre de Dios. This, certainly, was what they'd all been waiting for. Alerting to Testu of the news, the two captains sailed to the mouth of a river east of Nombre de Dios before disembarking. Moving inland to the ambush site, Drake commanded a small Anglo-Cimarron force of 30 men, with the Testu boasting an additional 70 French sailors. The date was April 29th, 1573. Hidden in the dense vegetation along the road, the raiders waited for the mule train just south of the port. Shortly after getting into position, a Cimarron scout came to meet them, warning of the train's arrival moments before the sound of the lead mule's bells began to ring in the raiders' ears. Lumbering down the road were some 200 mules, each heavily laden with hundreds of pounds of gold and silver, all protected by dozens of Spanish soldiers. As the train slowly moved into the engagement area, the signal to attack was given. Immediately, a volley of Cimarron arrows was let loose from the flora, piercing the torsos of the guards, killing some and wounding many more. The Spanish now thrown into confusion, the raiders sprang from the brush, closing with and engaging the guards in a vicious melee, the screams of violent men piercing the otherwise quiet jungle air. Steel met steel as swords crossed, each man in a personal bloody struggle with the other until one's weapon found its mark. Gaining the upper hand in the fighting, the raiders slowly pushed the Spanish back, the defenders strung out along the entire train, unable to bring ample numbers to bear in any given area that beat back their assailants. With the numbers of dead and wounded rising on both sides, it was the Spanish who broke first, disengaging the raiders and fleeing into the surrounding wilderness. The raiders had won. Having carried the day, the victorious raiders now sacked the mule train. Though they had suffered heavily in the fighting, the spoils of war were well worth it. When counted, the seized treasure amounted to more than 20 tons of silver and gold, worth a fortune even today. But now that the treasure was in their hands, they faced a new problem. They had to move it, but with Spanish authorities having certainly been warned of their presence by the surviving guards, time was of the essence. Thus, it was decided that each man should carry what he could, amounting to about 100,000 pesos of gold in total, and the rest would be buried nearby, to be retrieved at a later date. After the treasure had been buried, it was time to go, and Drake began to ready the surviving raiders for their return trek to the sea. De Testu, however, was in no shape to make the trek. Having suffered a severe wound in the fighting, the French captain was in stable condition, but in too poor of health to strike it out across the jungle. Rather than risk his life pushing through the jungles, De Testu elected to stay behind, joined by two loyal sailors, until he had healed enough to make the journey back to his ship. Leaving the Testu and the dead in their wake, Drake and the surviving raiders blazed a path through the jungle. Guided by the Cimarron, they traveled 18 miles through unforgiving terrain, over steep mountains and raging rivers, through dense thickets and suffocating tropical heat, each man loaded down with as much gold as he could carry, praying he'll make it home alive as a rich man. After an exhausting march, they made it to the coast, breaking out of the harsh jungle and onto the welcoming white sands of their original landing site, from where they could rendezvous with their ships offshore. Much to their dismay, however, the ships who now laid offshore were no friends of theirs. At some point during the operation, while Drake, Detestu, and the raiders were all ashore, Spanish warships had spotted the Anglo-French fleet and had driven them off. Where they were now was a mystery, and until they could be found, the lives of the raiders hung in the balance. Thinking on his feet, Drake ordered the immediate construction of a raft, using vines to lash together tree trunks taken from the surrounding jungle. 
Upon boarding the raft, Drake and two brave volunteers set sail down the coast, riding the surface some ten miles before reaching a small island just off the coast of the mainland. Landing at the island and crossing to the other side, Drake spotted his flagship, the Pasha, and was able to signal it for a pickup. As the crew of the Pasha took him aboard, they noted his rough appearance and inquired as to the outcome of the raid. Drake, seizing the opportunity, replied with a somber, defeated look, and as the spirits of the crew visibly plummeted, reached into his shirt and pulled out a magnificent necklace of pure Spanish gold, proclaiming, Our voyage is made, lads! Overjoyed, the crew cried out in elation, and with the directions given to them by Drake, returned to the rendezvous point, dodging Spanish patrols all along the way, and picked up the surviving raiders, loot and all. Having collected the raiders, Drake sent out a rescue party to retrieve Detestu and his two sailors, fearing, rightfully so, that Spanish soldiers were now swarming the area. The party returned some time later, empty-handed, besides only a bit of silver and some bad news. Captured by the Spanish, Detestu and his companions had been treated as pirates and were promptly beheaded. One of the sailors was kept alive just long enough to torture, the poor man disclosing the location of the buried treasure in a desperate, though unsuccessful, bid to save his own life. As a result, the Spanish had been able to retrieve most of the buried treasure, which had then been taken to Nombre de Dios, along with Detestu's head, which was now displayed in the center of the marketplace. Though the loss of Detestu was a blow to all, English and French alike, the raid on the mule train had still been a great success. The amount of gold seized from the Spanish and brought aboard the ships was a fortune in itself, even without most of the remaining treasure. And so, after giving the French their cut of the loot, and the Cimarron's a hefty payment in iron, they weren't interested in the precious metals. Drake steered his two ships for home. Landing in Plymouth on August 9th, the English government could not officially recognize his success, as they had signed a truce with Spain in the Convention of Nijmegen while he was away. Nonetheless, Drake and his men were received at the port with a hero's welcome by the English people. To their countrymen, they were courageous warriors who had taken the fight to the Spanish and had beaten them on their own turf. To the Spanish... They are no more than pirates, the scum of the earth, and the rats of the sea. Drake had become such a problem for the Spanish that they had even bestowed upon him a nickname, El Drake, meaning the dragon, and not, in fact, a humorous Spanish derivative of the word Drake. The raid on the treasure train at Nombre de Dios was the greatest success of Drake's career thus far, an event more than capable itself of bestowing upon him a hero's honor. As the English and Spanish were now in an uneasy state of peace, Drake found himself rather listless. Forced to keep a low profile and unable to partake in his favorite hobby, waging war on the Spanish, Drake took up what work he could. In 1575, he was tasked by Sir Henry Sidney, Lord Deputy of Ireland, with providing naval support for an English army led by Sir John Norris on campaign in Northern Ireland against a series of Scotch Gaelic clans who had been resisting Royal English authorities for years. While Norris and his army would march from clan to clan, Drake would lie offshore aboard his ship, ensuring that no reinforcements even dared to make the passage from the mainland, and to destroy any who do. Norris's campaign in Northern Ireland would see success against multiple clans, culminating in the attack on Rathlin Island, one of the principal anti-English clans, Clan MacDonnell, had used a castle upon the island to secure their valuables and notable families for safekeeping. Surrounded by rocky shores and a devastating western wind, the island had been a natural defensive position in ages past. The times, however, had changed. 
Upon their landing on the island, Norris and his army began to lay siege to Rathlin Castle, held by only 200 MacDonald defenders. Confident in the strength of their walls, however, the defenders began to rest easy. That is, until they began to take a pounding. Just offshore, Drake's vessel utilized its cannons to devastate the walls, easily tearing large holes into them and leaving the fortress open for attack. Exploiting the breaches in the wall, Norris's army plunged into the gaps, quickly overwhelming the defenders and putting them all to the sword. From his perch at Ballycastle on the Irish coast, with Rathlin Castle well within view, the clan chief, Sorley Boy MacDonald, could do nothing but watch as the heart of his clan was destroyed. So thorough was the destruction of the clan that the event came to be known as the Rathlin Island Massacre. Having taken the island, Norris began to rebuild the shattered walls so that the castle may be used by English forces in the future. Seeing that Norris intended to stay, however, and perhaps more than a little dismayed at the massacre of innocence, Drake turned for home, stating that he and his men were getting paid to take the island, not to defend it. Arriving back home in England, Drake resumed his previous stance of lying low, waiting for hostilities between England and Spain to inevitably erupt again. Which, to no one's surprise, they did. In early 1577, sensing the rapid decay of Anglo-Spanish relations, Queen Elizabeth I of England sent for Drake with a secret assignment. His mission was to strike the Spanish where they least expected, raiding the unguarded ports and lucrative shipping lanes of the American Pacific coast. Drake, without hesitation, accepted the task, and immediately began to put the riches he had gained from the Nombre de Dios raid to use, constructing a fleet of new ships capable of making the voyage. The journey was sure to be fraught with danger. Alone in hostile seas and isolated from the world, casualties were likely to be high. There was a sizable chance most of the crew would never return. But should it be successful, they would be able to return with near unimaginable levels of wealth. The opportunity to get in on the next Drake expedition wasn't lost to English investors, with the Queen herself pouring a large amount of gold into the venture, joined in her investment by numerous loyal favorites, the Secretary of State, prominent politicians, high officers of the Navy, and Drake's cousin and old business partner, Sir John Hawkins. Drake's expedition would require more than just a body of experienced sailors. It would have to be self-sufficient. From the investors, it received willing carpenters, tailors, blacksmiths, and cooks, skilled tradesmen, capable of ensuring that the fleet could sustain itself without external aid. Along with the specialists came additional men with high connections, referred to as gentlemen adventurers, on account of their high status in society. Two of these men, attorney Thomas Doughty and chaplain Francis Fletcher, both sent by investors as internal observers, would eventually both come to blows with Drake at sea, each with varying degrees of repercussions. But their tales will be told in due time. Upon the completion of his commissioned vessels, Drake stood before the largest complement of ships and crew he had yet commanded. As leader of the expedition, Drake was responsible for over 160 souls, spread throughout five ships. Standing at the head of his flagship, the 160-ton Pelican, Drake was joined by two other warships, the 80-ton Elizabeth and the 30-ton Marigold, the smallest vessel in the fleet. Heavily provisioned for the journey ahead, the expedition was additionally composed of two supply ships, the Benedict and the Swan, who would serve Drake in a purely logistical support role. Wary of his crew's morale, Drake promised most of his sailors that their target was the Levantine coast, hoping to placate them with the idea of an easy raid in the Mediterranean. Fearing his men would refuse to depart should they know their true target and the dangers that accompanied it, only a few of the expedition's officers were let in on the truth. 
His fleet well complemented with sturdy sailors and aptly provisioned for the voyage ahead, Drake's expedition set off from Plymouth on November 15th, sailing into the English Channel and promptly running headfirst into a major storm that forced them back into port with damage to both the Pelican and the Marigold. Somewhat anticlimactic, don't you think? Back in Plymouth, the expedition was waylaid for a month as the ships were repaired, reinforced, and reprovisioned as needed. The additional preparations having been completed, Drake, now behind schedule, saw it fit to set off once again. And so, on December 13th, 1577, Drake and his ships finally departed from Plymouth, England, entered the English Channel, and headed south. Drake's Great Pacific Expedition had finally begun. And so we have come to the end of this episode, part one in the series covering Sir Francis Drake. The episode was approaching the maximum length that I prefer these episodes to be, and I deem this to be the perfect stopping point. Are you disappointed? Do you feel like you've been left on a cliffhanger? Good. Because we have a lot more to cover, and we hope you return for the following episodes. Until then, we'll see you next time on Expedition History. <laughs>